This morning will be Galatians 1, 10 through 24. Finish up chapter 1. Uh, let's go to God in prayer before we go to His Word. Our Father, we do come to Your Word this morning with the confident expectation that um, it will... do the work that you intend for it to do in the souls of each person in this room. And I ask that by the power of your Spirit, the Word would cut us where we need to be cut and take away um, the wandering sinful flesh from us. And I ask that your Word also heal us where we need to be healed as we come bruised and battered from our warfare with this world to be mended and refreshed by you. Remind us this morning of the surpassing value of knowing Christ above all other things. And it's in His name that we ask. Amen. Okay, Uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll read aloud if you would join me silently. Galatians 1, 10-24 For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles, except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Can you imagine in our day of relativistic uh, philosophy and um, where it's a heresy to to call anything a heresy, what it would be like if Galatians was published today. And actually, we need not imagine there's a blog by the name of The Sacred Sandwich. And he, he wrote an article that's entitled, If Galatians Was Published in Christianity Today. The article consists of a number of of, uh, replies to the editor from people upset with this publication of Galatians in Christianity today. I'll read you three of them. There's There's several, but I'll read three. Dear Christianity Today, in response to Paul the Apostle, 
article about the Galatian church in your January issue, I have to say how appalled I am by the unchristian tone of this hit piece. Why the negativity? Has he been to the Galatian church recently? I happen to know some of the people at that church. They are the most loving, caring people I've ever met. Phyllis Snodgrass, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Here's another one. Dear Editor, how arrogant of Mr. Apostle to think that he has the right to judge these people and label them accursed. Isn't that God's job? Regardless of this circumcision issue, these Galatians believe in Jesus just as much as he does. And it's very pharisaical of him to condemn them just because they differ on such a secondary issue. Can't we just focus on our common commitment to Christ furthering his kingdom instead of tearing down fellow believers over petty doctrinal matters? Ed Bilgeway from Kansas. One more. Kind editors, I happen to be a member of First Christian Church of Galatia, and I take issue with Mr. Apostle's article. How can he criticize a ministry that has been so blessed by God? Our church has baptized many new members and has made huge inroads in the Jewish community with our pragmatic view on circumcision. Such a seeker-sensitive approach has given the Jews the respect they deserve for being God's chosen people for thousands of years. In addition, every Gentile in our midst has felt honored to engage in the many edifying rituals of the Hebrew heritage, including circumcision, without losing their passion for Jesus. My advice to Mr. Apostle is to stick to spreading the gospel message of Christ's unconditional love and quit criticizing what God has so clearly blessed in other churches. There's a hypothetical editor's note, and then I'll be be done with this. Christianity Today apologizes for our rash decision in publishing Paul's Apostle's expose of the Galatian church. Had we known the extent to which our readership and advertisers would withdraw their financial support, we never would have printed such an unpopular biblical truth. We regret any, any damage we may have caused in propagating the doctrines of Christ. These are goofy, but tragically precise and cutting, aren't they? We live in an age which is like really every other age before us. That The, the love of Jesus draws a crowd, but, but at the first mention of the reproach of the cross, we turn tail and run. What I want us to see from this text this morning is that the call of the Christian life is to believe and to testify to a gospel message that pleases God rather than pleasing man. And we'll work through this text really under three headings. First, Christ's gospel is Christ's gospel. Second, Christ's gospel is offensive. Third, Christ's gospel brings glory to God. So it's Christ's gospel. It's offensive and it brings glory to God. So the first one, Christ's gospel is Christ's gospel. Really, there's millions of messages proclaimed around us every day. And each one of us, whether we think so or not, is proclaiming a gospel message. And it can be very confusing. Which one of these millions of messages do I follow? But we can simplify it. We can simmer it down. And we, when we get to the, the very bottom of it, there's two basic categories. Truth and untruth. Truth proceeds from God. Untruth proceeds from outside of God. Uh, 
Who would you say is the most inflammatory figure in the Bible? I mean, we think Galatians is fiery, but, but listen to, to gentle Jesus, meek and mild from, from John chapter 8. And actually, if you'll turn there, John 8, 37 through 47. Remember, the context here is that he's speaking to Jews who very much love their heritage and their lineage, and they're very proud to be sons of Abraham. John 8, 37 through 47. Jesus says to them, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham's children, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot it is because you cannot bear my word? You are of your father, the devil. And you, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. We read this the other night at the dinner table for a family devotion. And I said afterwards, no wonder they wanted to crucify him. <laughs> he told them, you're not sons of Abraham. Your father is the devil. How unchristlike of him. <laughs> but notice here, what is the dividing line between the sons of God and the sons of the devil? It's truth and lies. There's two types of gospel. There's the true and the untrue. God is the father of the truth, and the devil is the father of untruth. Paul had previously gone through and taught the Galatian churches the true gospel, likely on his first missionary journey, and this is the one and only gospel of God, the truth. And now all of a sudden it seems like Paul's gospel is viewed as as flexible, as, as somewhat optional, as we can change a few things. And if his gospel was something like another of the countless human philosophies, I think it would be reasonable and okay to take and mix and match and tailor for our own purposes. But that's not what it is. Paul's basic point here, and it's an emphatic point, is that the gospel that he preached at Galatia was not his gospel. It's Christ's gospel. He says in verses 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, 
but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So then now he's going to go on and and explain and recount his story for them, his story of salvation and call to the ministry um, to demonstrate the source of his gospel. Paul, Paul's not a person who crafted his own worldview and philosophy through long decades of, of careful study. In fact, he held the position that was in direct conflict with Christianity. He, he was a Pharisee, trained by the, the venerable Gamaliel, um, and advancing, he says, beyond many his own age in Judaism, in his tradition, in his zeal, for the glory of the tradition of his forefathers was unparalleled. Thomas Schreiner comments that Paul probably saw himself as somebody kind of like Phineas. You remember who ran the man and woman through with a spear, defending the law of God. He had that kind of zeal. Or maybe like Elijah, who in his zeal for God slew the the priest of Baal. That's probably what Paul thought of himself as. He was breathing murderous threats and hauling Christians off to prison to the glory of God and in the defense of God's law. Of course, God had other plans for Paul. Um, He says from the time he was in his mother's womb, really from before all time. And when the time came, he called Paul. He revealed Jesus to him and gave him this mission to preach Christ to the Gentiles. So Saul, the Christ-hater, became the apostle preaching Christ to the Gentiles by grace alone. Paul's gospel is not man's gospel. It is Christ's gospel. And we'll see in a week or two, his gospel is the same gospel as the apostles, um, but it was not dependent upon their teaching. And it didn't need to be because he received it as a direct revelation from Jesus on the Damascus Road. Um, And he began preaching. We don't see this so much in our text, but in Acts chapter 9, he began preaching right away in Damascus, preaching Christ. It says he went off into Arabia and then he came back to Damascus. And it wasn't until three years later that he finally met Peter and James and, and really only briefly. And we see there in Acts 2 that the whole time he's in Jerusalem, he's preaching Christ. Um, after he was in Jerusalem, he went up to Syria and Cilicia, which is where he's from. Uh, Tarsus, Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is in uh, Cilicia. And Antioch, which is some, a place that Paul is connected with, is in Syria. So he went basically back to his home. And he continued to preach Jesus, that he was the Son of God and the Messiah this entire time. And the point here is that Paul wants to make plain his gospel is the gospel that he preached for nearly two decades. says he didn't go back to Jerusalem for 14 years after that. So a decade and a half. Um, He preached that gospel before he confirmed it fully with the other apostles. So it certainly didn't come from Paul because he hated Christ and it didn't come from anyone else. This is not man's gospel. The message he preached is definitively and unarguably the message Jesus gave him to preach. And therefore, Paul is completely in the right to condemn the false teachers. That's what we saw last week. Anathema. They were adding to Christ's gospel. That's the first principle we must remember if we're to be faithful servants of Jesus. 
if we're to please God rather than man, is that the gospel we believe must be the pure, unadulterated gospel of the apostles, the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the gospel we bear witness to must be that same singular, exclusive gospel. And it's so tempting, I think, to remove the offense of the gospel. Just by tweaking it a little bit, or, or, or my own personal temptation is to just close my mouth. Not speak when I should. Remove the offense of the gospel. But we must remember what, what Paul found by experience and what we all as Christians know by experience. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul received grace through a revelation of the Son of God. So we're never allowed to adjust that word and we're never allowed to hide it. It's not ours to change, nor is it ours to obfuscate. It's Christ's gospel and he commands us to bring it to the nations, which really is a scary proposition for me, to, to bring it to the nations because we know how the world will find what we have to say. They'll find it distasteful. And that's our second heading. Christ's gospel is offensive. One accusation that legalists will levy against preachers of grace is that by removing works from justification, from salvation, you're trying to please men. You're trying to make it easy on them so they they can kind of do whatever they want. And it's an easy salvation. And Paul was apparently the object of this type of accusation. You can hear the Galatians kind of arguing with the new teachers saying, well, Paul told us that it was by grace alone through faith alone. And you can hear the new teachers, well, Paul didn't want to offend you by requiring this very painful ordinance. In response to this accusation, Paul says in verse 10, essentially, I just pronounced a double anathema on these people. Do I sound like a people pleaser? (laughs) Anathemas are not a good place to start if you're trying to win friends and influence people. He goes on, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Servants of Christ give off a particular smell. We read in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? But why does the world hate the odor of Christ? And we find it so fragrant. Why do they hate it? Luther comments on this. He says, The world cannot bear, can bear nothing less than to hear its wisdom, righteousness, religion, and power condemned. To speak against those mighty and glorious gifts of the world is not to flatter the world, but rather to provoke its hatred and indignation. If we speak against men or against anything linked to their glory, we must expect cruel hatred, persecution, excommunication, murder, and condemnation. So I think that the offense of the cross, among other things, is in this very simple sentence, you are not good. You are not good. Your efforts to please God are not good. Your meritorious works only merit damnation. Your greatest social reform accomplishments 
are just temporary band-aids. Your ethical and moral codes are ultimately filthy and corrupt. And your best efforts and your greatest achievements are so contaminated by sin that they require the wrath of God poured out on His own Son to be forgiven. Your best things. That, that stings. Now, there's much to be commended in our unbelieving friends. We must remember that. Gifts of common grace within all of us. Um, They have many skills, assets to affirm. The image of God is is evident within every man. And, And we need not unnecessarily offend or bring undue reproach upon Christ or the church through unkindness or rudeness or, or anger. And Paul commands in Colossians that our speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. So we have to remember in this context that um, our unbelieving friends are people who are blinded by the enemy. Their foolish hearts are darkened. So we need to have compassion and pity as we seek to show them the light of this world. Um, that said, the whole notion of friending people into the kingdom, preaching the gospel by works alone, that, that's completely foreign to any biblical model of evangelism. Remember that the the most loving, caring, compassionate, kind human being to ever walk the face of this earth engendered such hatred that they spit on him, pinned him to a cross, and murdered him. He told his disciples, if the world hated me, you know that it will hate you. A servant is not greater than his master. So, The simple reality is, if we follow Jesus, we will be carrying a cross. What Paul says here is so convicting to me. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Love is best shown to unbelievers by giving them Christ and enduring their hatred for their good. Uh, Walter Martin, the great apologist and expert on the cults, not exactly known for for going easy on people. But he has a wonderful sermon, The Baptism of Boldness, in which he recounts an experience of being on on a Christian television program. And on the program, the host, the woman, asks him, she said, Well, you know, I commend all of your work you've done with the cults, but I have one constructive criticism. He said, "What, What is it? She she accused him essentially of not being very loving toward the cults. And of course his response was, well, pardon me while I do your job. What what have you done? I love Mormons. I love Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm giving my life for them. He says, till cultism goes to its home in hell and I go to mine in heaven, I am fighting for their lives. I am fighting for their souls. And he went on to say, that's love. He says, love isn't this gooey, sticky, syrupy garbage that flows out where people are forever saying with this plastic, evangelical, charismatic smile plastered on their face, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, we want you to get born again. People are dying in their sins. You've got to tell them more that Jesus than Jesus loves them. You've got to tell them Jesus is going to judge them. If they're not going to receive love, they're going to receive justice. I think Walter Martin got what we need to get. And that's 
that Christ's gospel is a hard word. By preaching it in its, in its fullness and its purity, literally thousands of people have been saved as a, reser- as a result of, of Brother Martin's work. The word of God, we're told, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a cutting implement by design. So we do a great deal of damage when we, when we blunt the edge of the gospel. The message of the cross is a hard word, but if we would be faithful servants of Christ, we must spread it as as seed and expect God to give the growth as he discerns and then bear its reproach. The gospel of Christ is offensive to the world, but we also see that it's pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God, which is our third heading. Christ's gospel brings glory to God. Paul ends Romans chapter 11 in a familiar verse. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Why did God create the world the way he did? Why does he govern it the way he does? Why did he order redemption in the way he chose to order redemption? He says here, For his own glory. Ultimately, the reason we exist is to bring glory to God. So as hard as it is for us to put down the man-pleasing part of our flesh and endure the reproach of Christ's gospel, we do so for the glory of God. We see at least three means here that God uses to glorify himself in this text um, through Christ's gospel. Uh, The first is that approval from God is seen in contrast to the disapproval of man. Approval from God is in contrast to the disapproval of man. He says in verse 10 again, For now am I seeking the approval of man or of God? There's going to be times when we will suffer the loss of friendship or or even uh, family relationships for the sake of the gospel. And I think sometimes we say things, and I say this as well, uh, I'm keeping my eyes open for the right opportunity to have a gospel conversation with my friend. And there's some legitimacy to this. Of course, we, we need to be, you know, have the appropriate level of patience and, and wisdom with people. But I think oftentimes what we really mean, if we're honest with ourselves, is I'm waiting till I can have that hard conversation with them without offending them or risking the friendship. Well, if that's our attitude, then we need to just wait to eternity because I've believed the gospel for roughly 28 years and my flesh still takes offense at the gospel. That day will never come. Matthew 10, 34-39 Do not think that I have come to bring peace, Jesus says, to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his, his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. 
So the approval of God the Father and the, the bliss of knowing Him is something that, that must far surpass any earthly relationship or possession we might possibly have in this life. I mean, think about Paul as an example who was advancing in Judaism. He, he was young and he was becoming a big dog, right? And all that he knew, all his esteem that he was gaining, all his friends, all his well-established social network, everything that he had was flipped on its head in an instant on the Damascus Road. He could never go back to that. He lost everything, but he had Jesus. Or Martin Luther, very similar story to, to Paul. Martin Luther is the, the monk to beat all monks. The most pious man above them all. I was reading his commentary and he said he would fast to the point of, of damaging his body. He was that committed and then to be excommunicated from his church, from the Roman Catholic Church and declared a heretic and an outlaw by the Pope himself. Both of these men had much in their old systems, but they counted it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. The glory of God in the reproach of the gospel is seen in God's surpassing worth. Whatever we might count as gain is loss in comparison with knowing Him and pleasing Him in Christ. The second way Christ's gospel brings glory to God is that we see salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 15, But when He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me. So again, Paul did not find God by seeking and probing. He, he, he didn't discover Him through use of His own reason or... Um, his own faculty of his mind that, so that he could boast. Uh, I think oftentimes of like Aristotle who, who was this brilliant mind and he, he arrived at this conclusion of the unmoved mover has to be out there somewhere. That's like to me as close as you can get without special revelation. That's not Paul. He didn't even get that far. In fact, he was under the delusion that he loved God. Everything that he did was for the zeal of the glory of God. And it turns out all along he hated God. He was persecuting Jesus. Paul came to faith by the predestination of the Father and his timely revelation of Jesus to him. So when Paul preaches grace, it's far from theoretical. He knows grace. He received the pure, unmerited favor of God so that God gets the sole credit for Paul's knowledge of the Son of God. God's, God gets the glory from Christ's gospel because salvation belongs to the Lord. By grace, least any man should boast to the praise of his glorious grace. The third way in which Paul or in which Christ's gospel brings glory to God is that uh, the people of God rejoice in the gospel. The people of God rejoice in verse 22. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So again, what a testimony of God's saving power that he can flip a God-hater into a Christ-preacher in an instant. 
uh, several guys I went to seminary with, and probably several people you know of, a handful of them have very Pauline-type stories. Just this dramatic shift. Maybe some of you are that person. But it says, the church has glorified God because of me. They, they said, God is powerful. Look at what he's done. He saved Paul, who hated Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the church really is still praising God for turning Paul from a Christ-hater to a Christ-preacher. Arguably, no person has been used by God to present the gospel of Christ with more clarity than Paul, God's chosen apostle to the Gentiles. Praise God for His grace in saving Paul. Without Paul, we wouldn't have Romans or First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the Thessalonians, the letters to Timothy, Titus, Philemon. I don't know about you, but a lot of those represent some of my favorite books in the Bible. God did a good thing when He saved Paul. So He gets the glory. And we should rejoice. So in, in conclusion, I think the message of this text is clear. To serve Christ, we must please God rather than man by holding to that offensive, God-glorifying gospel of Jesus Christ and testifying to it. And I am well aware, because I feel it, that the elements of this message can be very convicting. Uh, People-pleasing is easy. I'm a people-pleaser. Taking up our cross to follow Jesus is far from easy. But what I hope is that the glory of God in the gospel is something that will stimulate us and energize us to press on with confidence. What I don't want is us to feel weighted or burdened by a sense of failure. Because a sense of failure will just cause us to give up from trying. But I pray instead that the glory of God propels us forward to both believe and testify Christ's gospel. I hope we can see that his that God's approval of us in Christ begins to surpass anything that we might lose because we preach the gospel. Or that we would truly believe and live like salvation belongs to the Lord. That we would see and trust God that those who we minister to may or may not trust the gospel, but God is in control. And that we'd be encouraged by the story of Paul that no sinner, no matter how antagonistic, is outside of God's reach. And finally, that we would rejoice and glorify God because of His saving work in our lives, in the lives of those we minister to, and those whom we hear, even from Africa, from Jan. It's glorious. To God be the glory in His gospel, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.